we just sang a moment ago, of course, about the wonder of the Word of God as Larry led us in those songs and how powerful and beautiful they were. And certainly tonight, we are going to devote the next few moments to a consideration of at least portions of the Word of God. We are so thankful for the presence of every individual tonight, and we always trust that our study of the Word of God and all the aspects of our worship will be encouraging and most of all, pleasing unto God. I hope that you do have a Bible handy as we will try to answer again several questions tonight and hence we'll be looking at several various passages in the Bible. Questions and answers, as you already realize, is something we've done. This is the sixth time this year now already to this point. And as we have looked at each one of these... As we look at each one of these, tonight again is questions that, that various individuals have at least posed. None of these are mine, and I'll never try to, to use any of my own questions, but rather things that have been asked, things that have been at least put before us for consideration. You'll notice on this opening slide, you and I have a strong conviction that the Bible is the Word of God. In Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16, the inspired writer said, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. With yet conviction that also rests in the mind of you and me, we're going to then open that Bible tonight with the hope that it will give us some guidance on answering these various questions that have been asked. With that said, let's then turn to our first question. As always, let me try to read it verbatim in the way that it was asked. And by the way, I guess I should also say, if I ever misinterpret your question, whoever wrote it, if I, in fact, appreciate something different in it than what you intended to ask, and so I answer a whole different question, just kindly write another one, put it in the box, and maybe I can get it right the second time. Question one. We read of the tree of life in Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24, and Revelation 22, 2. In Genesis, God put Adam and Eve out of the garden before they ate of the tree of life and lived forever. In Revelation, John said he saw the tree of life and that it bore twelve different fruits every month. My question is, will those who enter into heaven have to eat of the fruit of the tree of life to live forever? And if so, what about those who do not make it to heaven? The Bible teaches us that their punishment will last forever. Matthew 25, 46, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9. Can you appreciate the thrust of the individual's question? References made in the Word of God to the tree of life, and then especially in Revelation, those who enter heaven apparently have access to it. Does that somehow mean that those who do not make it to heaven that there's something different in terms of their longevity, or to say it differently, what about the nature of living perpetually? Well, let's put a few thoughts together and attempt to, to use the Word of God to help us with the answer. The individual who wrote this asserted that in Genesis 3, there is reference made to the, to the tree of life, and I've asked you to note some of those things, especially at the outset. The book of Genesis details that God made two very special trees. There was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There was also the tree of life. He gave his special instructions to Adam and Eve, don't partake of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. In fact, they were not even allowed to touch it. 
He said, In the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. But it is with that in mind, we note the following. The tree of life was different. Adam and Eve could partake of it. And as we learn in Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24, they could eat of it and live perpetually in the flesh. However, they chose to sin. After they chose to sin, of course, God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and He guarded the way of the tree of life so that Adam and Eve no longer had access to that tree, and therefore they could not live forever in the flesh. They had no access to the tree of life. At that point, you and I then wait for the next biblical references to the tree of life. The next reference that I was able to find was Ezekiel 47. We have one more time there a reference to this marvelous tree of life, and Ezekiel's reference to it really takes us to the book of Revelation. And therein is our last reference. In Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, we see it one more time. But this time, as John sees it, it's not on earth anywhere. It's in heaven. This beautiful tree existed in heaven. And verse number 14 of that closing chapter in the Bible says, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. So those who in fact are blessed to inhabit heaven will have access in some way to this thing that John saw, this kind of tree of life. Now more directly to the question that was asked, the person asked, so will there literally be a tree in heaven that those who are blessed to enter heaven will have to partake of it in order that they might live forever? And you may have noted that the person worded it like this, will those who enter into heaven have to eat of the fruit of the tree of life to live forever? And if so, what about those who do not make it to heaven? I'd like to offer these considerations. You and I know very well that heaven is not a place likened with flesh and blood like things are here on earth. So there's not going to be a literal mansion there, although John 14 says that in my Father's house are many mansions. By that, again, we just know there is a perfectly and grand, wonderful place of abode, but it's just not made of rocks and wood, and it's not made of stones and bricks. That's a spiritual realm. It's not flesh and blood and bones like things are here on earth. This reference in Revelation 22, it would seem that the very context helps us appreciate that because you may have noted... It says this tree bears 12 different kinds of fruit every month. Now the thing of it is, the way God orchestrated things, trees, and in fact, other aspects of life bring forth after their kind. And so on earth, we recognize that's the way things work. May I submit it would appear that description in Revelation 22 is a description more than anything else of a union with God. And by that I mean this, with God there's life. He's the giver of it. He sustains it. And with Him there's happiness, there's contentment, there's joy and satisfaction. But where God is not, there is not happy life at least. There may be existence, but there's not really life. From a spiritual standpoint, you and I know that 
there is death where there's not God. Didn't Paul say in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, you are dead in trespasses and sins. When you disobey God, you may be alive physically, but you're dead spiritually. This tree of life in Revelation 22 is a description, and a beautiful one at that. Those who are blessed to enter heaven, they will be with God, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, and with all that is perfect and good, and they'll enjoy the fullness of life throughout all ages. That tree appears not then to be a literal thing that people will have to eat of. But let's look at the second part of the question. What about those who go to hell? Now, they're going to live forever too, but it's not life. They'll be in existence to be sure, but again, it's where God is not. There'll be an existence, but it'll be misery. It'll be existence, but it won't be life. It'll be eternal death. That's the way Revelation 20 describes it. Remember the second death? The second death? They'll be alive in the sense of existence, but they'll be completely separated from God. It will be an eternal death, not eternal life. I hope we did a bit of justice to that opening question. Let's look at the second one. This second question, it reads like this. It seems that when a person passes away, we hear people say, God has another angel, whether they were Christians or not. I know those who are outside Christ do not go to heaven. My question is, how do people come up with this idea? Could it be from Matthew 22.30? You may want to be turning to Matthew 22.30, and we'll get to that passage in just a moment. The person has made this observation. There is clearly much in the Bible about angels. There is much in the Bible about the consideration and the kind of things that angels do. May I ask that we take some careful observation of some of the observations made in this particular question. When someone passes away, some people say God has another angel, whether they were Christians or not. Now, you may have heard people say that. Maybe you've attended a funeral service or maybe visited at a funeral home, and obviously people are very emotional, and individuals oftentimes wish to say something that might offer comfort to the family. And maybe they'll make a statement, well, this individual, though gone, God has another angel now. I'd like to suggest that we're very careful about any language like that for reasons that we're now about to see. First of all, in Luke 16, verses 19 and following, there's a rather powerful description of the rich man in Lazarus. As the Lord taught that parable, He, of course, spoke about these two individuals who upon earth lived in very different circumstances, but they both died, both Lazarus and the rich man. The angels carried Lazarus into Abraham's bosom. This place of bliss and glorious splendor, this place of comfort. On the other hand, the rich man lifted up his eyes in torment. It's at that point we might note this. Angels had a role to play there. They actually carried or in fact buoyed away this spirit of Lazarus into that place called paradise. To that I might add the following. 
In Psalm 148, verses 2 and following, the angels are created beings. They are not eternal like God is. They are not eternal like Jesus or like the Holy Spirit. They were created. I say all of that to make that next point. God made man a little lower than the angels, according to the wording of Hebrews 2.7. Now that means there's a distinction between what God made as a human being and the way He made these angels. You and I are not angels, and they are not humans. Now there were occasions that they in the Bible could, for a certain purpose, take the form of a human, at least in appearance. After all, didn't Lot, in Genesis 18, he conversed with and in fact spoke with those two angelic visitors. But again, God made angels and man very different. Do we have any biblical evidence anywhere that humans become angels after we die? No. There's no biblical hint anywhere that that takes place. Did you notice the rich man as well as Lazarus both died, but neither one became an angel. Neither one became an angel. Let's also consider this. You may notice that there's something very different about what opportunities angels are given. You and I know that as human beings, there's a plan of salvation to which you and I can give our attention and we can be saved from sin. According to Hebrews 2.16, angels have no plan of salvation. May I again say there's something very different about the arena of the angels and the arena here. What the Bible does teach is there's a Hadean realm. When you and I die, that's where we're going to go. This place that's called paradise on the one hand or Tartarus on another, this place that is in fact a place of abode of, of disembodied spirits. Notice again, those who are there are not angels. They're spirit beings waiting that great day of resurrection, the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment which will attend it. For that reason, at the very bottom, the person went on to ask in this question, those who do seemingly feel this way, did they get this maybe from Matthew twenty-two thirty? Well, if you've already turned to that passage, you know that Matthew twenty-two thirty is a description from Jesus. There were those, the Sadducees in fact, who had asked Jesus this question. They had posed Him this situation. A man has a wife, but he dies without any children. His brother subsequently marries the widow. He in turn dies, and that proceeds through seven brothers. Their question was, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? In response to that, Jesus said, You're mistaken. For rather, in the resurrection, they're like the angels. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. The question was asked, is that where people get this idea? I don't know. Maybe it is. I don't know. But even if that is the place where they get it, the context does not teach it. All that Jesus says is that in the resurrection, you have an existence likened to angels. He didn't say you become one. He says you have an existence like them. Thus, again, the text doesn't teach that we become angels. It does teach in that grand time when we enter heaven, we will have an existence that will be like angels. 
But that didn't have anything to do with angels serving on earth. But again, to be specific, I don't know if that's where that idea comes from. All I know is the Bible doesn't teach that idea. Question three. What about this consideration? This one, very interesting question. In fact, all the questions are fantastic as usual. Let me again read it. I was in a Bible study and the teacher said that Jesus was crucified. He went to hell and preached to those who died in the flood. I do not agree and said so. We were studying from 1 Peter 3, verses 17 to 22. Please explain these verses. I'd invite you to turn to 1 Peter 3, verses 17 to 22, and we will devote a few moments to consideration relative to that passage. 1 Peter 3, verses 17 to 22. There's a sense in which I hope that what was stated in this question is a bit troubling. This person said that he or she was in a Bible class somewhere, and the teacher said that after he was crucified, Jesus went to hell and preached to the people that had died in the flood of Noah's day. That is absolutely false. I sorely regret that any Bible teacher would teach that. But I have to make a confession. There was some years ago that Denise and I, it was a Sunday when uh, I was not here, we attended at a congregation, and oddly enough, in the Bible study hour, in context, 1 Peter 3, verses 17 to 22 was discussed, and the very thing this person mentioned is the same thing that Bible teacher taught. A tragedy beyond description. Let's, in fact, give some attention. Let me begin reading in verse 17 of 1 Peter 3, and let's give our attention to this. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For, for Christ also hath once suffered for the sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also He went and preached unto the spirits in prison." which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. There we have it. So someone might be quick to say, doesn't that say that Jesus went and preached to those spirits in prison, the very ones who again had died in the flood of Noah's day, isn't that what it says? No, that isn't what it says. Let's look at the language a bit more carefully. Verse 18, Christ suffered for sins. We know that, of course, in regard to His death on the cross. He died as the just for the unjust, that you and me, that He might bring us to God. He, in fact, made the means whereby you and I could be reconciled to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but He was quickened by the Spirit. That's a reference to not only His death on the cross, but His resurrection. He was quickened, made alive again by the Spirit. Verse 19. There's a very important prepositional phrase that starts verse 19. By which also he went. Question. No doubt it says in some way he in fact went and preached to these. May I ask how he did it? The text says he went in spirit. 
That's what the text says. He did not physically himself go and preach to these. The text says it was in spirit that he did it. Let's read on. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited to the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. We are given the information about who these spirits in prison were. And the person is correct in saying it was those who were alive in the days of Noah, but they were disobedient to God. And therefore, they were not aboard the ark. They died when the floodwaters came. Now, the text says that Jesus in spirit preached to them. You'll notice on that slide. Let's fill in the remaining details. Who did this preaching? We've already learned it wasn't Jesus in the flesh. It really wasn't even Jesus in, in any other mechanism. All we have to do is look at the same book, or rather the same writing. Go over to 2 Peter 2, verse number 5. 2 Peter 2, verse 5, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so the facts of the case are these. Noah preached the necessity of repentance to those before the flood came. During that period of 120 years, while the ark was preparing, Noah, under the desire for individuals to repent, he preached to them about the nature of God and His judgment. But you and I know they chose not to obey. He preached to them, that is to say, Jesus preached to them in the person of Noah. The Holy Spirit equipped Noah to preach the Word of God, and it is by the agency of that Spirit that Noah preached and proclaimed that message to them. You may notice this also in verses 19 and 20, back of our reading. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. It would be very easy to ask this question. If one takes the position that Jesus then literally went and preached to these people, why didn't He preach to the others in hell? Isn't that a good question? What about the countless thousands of people who died under the era of the Old Testament, but were not those who died in the flood of Noah's day? What about all the Canaanites and all the Amorites and all the Philistines? Why didn't Jesus preach to them? Clearly the people who think this way don't have any good answer to that. That would seem to make Jesus out to be a respecter of persons if that was true. He preached only to them but not to the other people in hell. fact is the Lord didn't personally go and preach to any of them. The facts of the case. While Noah was on earth, the matter of the gospel, the matter of the message of God that he preached... It was such that he had been equipped to do so, and the Lord, through the agency of the Spirit, preached to those people. They were given the opportunity to respond, and they chose not to. Now, it might be interesting to note the language that Peter uses. It says in verse 20, "...which aforetime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah." These spirits... They were perfectly alive on earth when Noah preached to them. 
But, of course, at the time after they had died, they now existed not on earth, but rather in the Hadean realm. And that leads me to note the idea at the bottom of that slide. The explanation, putting those things together, seems easy to appreciate in this form. The preaching was done through Noah while Noah was alive on earth, and they were too. But at this point, those individuals had long since died. They were now in the Hadean realm. But this text does not teach that Jesus went to hell and preached to these people that had died in the flood of Noah's day. I hope that that does some justice to the nature of that particular question. I might suggest while we're at it, there's a time or two in the book of 1 Peter when ideas like that will reappear. Now, it has to do with a different group of people. So I might ask you to note verse 5 of chapter 4. Since it's not far from this context, it could be helpful as you study and read the book of 1 Peter. It says in that single verse, "...who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead?" For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. That verse, upon a quick reading, seems to be a troubling thing. Notice again it says the gospel was preached to those that are dead. What does that mean? The idea is easy. They were perfectly alive while the preaching was done to them. But since that time, they had died. And so Peter could rightfully say, the gospel was preached to those who were now dead, but they weren't dead when it was preached to them. They were alive. Again, that occurs a couple of times in First Peter. You might just take note. That can be helpful to remember. Otherwise, that makes it sound like there's some preaching being done to folks that are already dead. That sounds like the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach it here or anywhere else. Let's turn to our next question. Question number four. This question reads as follows. How did it come to be that the tribe of Manasseh in the Old Testament was split into two halves? Now that, of course, takes us back to our study on Sunday mornings, really, but as we have on many occasions noted the various twelve tribes of Israel and appreciated that in the division of the land, the tribe of Manasseh was split. Half the tribe of Manasseh had land on the eastern side of the Jordan. The other half had land on the western side of the Jordan. How did that tribe get two land allotments? Half of them for each part. No other of the tribes got that. Very good question someone has asked. I hope we could do some justice to the statement. Would you be turning to Numbers 32? Numbers chapter 32 will find our first hint at an answer. The opening verse of that chapter reads as follows, Numbers 32, 1. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that, behold, the place was a place for cattle, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and Eleazar, the priest, and unto the princes of the congregation. And continuing onward, basically they said, This land is a land for cattle, and we've got a lot of cattle. We'd like to stay here. Despite the fact it was on the eastern side of the Jordan. 
I would call to your attention which tribes first asked for this land. Verse number 1 says it was the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad. No mention is made of Manasseh. You might take note of that. As you and I come to our slide, it does lead me to observe the following. As far as those 12 tribes, there were some interesting things that took place relative to maintaining that number in regard to the inheritance of land. Now, there were 12 sons of Jacob, but you and I remember the tribe of Levi got no land. That would drop the number to 11. However, we also remember that Joseph got no land per se by that name. That would drop the number to 10. But rather, Joseph's two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, both got land. That takes the number back to 12. So the maintaining of the number 12 was in a rather unusual way, admittedly. But that still brings us back to this business of Manasseh. We've just noted in Numbers 32, the Manassites didn't even ask for land east of the Jordan, and yet they ended up with it. Well, let's read further. Look to verse number 39 of this same chapter. Numbers 32, verse 39. This one, I think, speaks volumes about this point. It says, And the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it and dispossessed the Amorite which was in it. Now the fact is, the time came that Machir, who was the son of Manasseh, he actually went to Gilead, this area east of the Jordan, and took it. He didn't ask for it. He just by force took it. The text says, and dispossessed the Amorite which was in it. I'd like to suggest to you it would appear then that somewhat later, sometime later, the, at least part of the people of Manasseh decided they did like it there, and they went over there by force and took it. They didn't petition Moses for it. They didn't really ask any of the others in light of it. And later in Joshua 17, something else is asserted that seems to offer some help on this. In Joshua 17, beginning in verse 1, if I may read a couple of verses there, it says, There was also a lot, now may I say, after the children of Israel entered the land of Canaan and began to divide that land among them. That's where this chapter enters. There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, to wit, for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Therefore he had Gilead in Bashan. There was also a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, by their families, for the children of Abizer, and for the children of Halak, and for the children of Asriel, and for the children of Shechem, and for the children of Hefer, and for the children of Shemida, these were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their families. I've tried to explain at the bottom what that verse appears to suggest. Here's the idea. Of the family of the tribe of Manasseh, there was Machir, and he was known as a man of war. He apparently was very successful in warfare. He was apparently very successful in military matters. In light of that, the children of Israel chose to give his descendants the land east of the Jordan River. 
that land they had taken earlier, they were chosen to give that to them, in essence, as a gift for the military exploits of Machir. But verse number 2 says, The rest of the tribe of Manasseh, those that were not of Machir, they settled west of the Jordan in that allotment, not really far from the territory that was ultimately given to Judah. So it seems as though splitting of that one was due to the military matter of Machir, and that land was given to his descendants as a gift after he had basically taken it by force. As far as I can tell, that's the best answers the Bible gives to that one. Question number five. Question number five is a very short question. It reads like this. Is it wrong for a church of Christ to have a steeple on the building? Is it wrong for a church of Christ to have a steeple on the building? I'm sure we're each well aware that much has been made throughout, I guess, the last hundred years about church buildings, what is allowed and what's not. And there are those who, in fact, have asserted you can't have a kitchen, you can't have running water, you can't have restrooms, and on and on the list seems to go. And sometimes those kinds of questions even extend to the nature of the structure itself, like this question. Would it be permissible for a church of Christ building to have a steeple on it? Well, you'll notice some of the thoughts I would invite for your consideration. The first thing we need to say, the New Testament is completely silent about a church building per se. The church of the first century met in homes. Reference in Acts, they met in a school of Tyrannus. They met in other places. There's no reference anywhere to any of the New Testament congregations having what you and I would call a located, owned building by them. Therefore, all we can do is use principles of the New Testament to guide us in light of answering a question like this one. And for that reason, I would be quick to say this. There is authorization in the New Testament for a church building. Consider the following. Isn't it true we are commanded to meet, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We have to assemble. Now, where we assemble is left to, to our consideration, specifically that of our elders. We could meet in one of our homes. We could meet under a tree. We could meet beside a pond. We could meet in a barn. We could meet in a rented hall. The idea is it doesn't matter where we meet. But I would suggest that at least by the consideration of a located building, we have several advantages. We can advertise to individuals that this is where we'll meet and they can come and meet with us. And we can thus also, of course, have enough room for a large audience to meet at once. Now, most of us probably would struggle to have a living room large enough to house 85 or 90 people. Point is, there are some definite advantages to a church building, and the New Testament does authorize us to appreciate one. But our question is more directly about a steeple. The word steeple doesn't occur anywhere in the Bible. Don't know anything about the specifics or character, so at the bottom I might say this. 
I think we'd have to be a bit cautious of always saying it'd be wrong. I'm assuming maybe what would direct one's thought along this line, would it be right to invest money of the church treasury for something like a steeple? Well, you don't know that money out of the treasury was used to buy it. Maybe a member donated it. Maybe another member paid. Maybe a business donated it. You know, you just don't know how it might have been paid for. That reason alone would make it dangerous to just presume the church bought it. But may I say, even if the church did buy it, what about the bottom? It could well be that it would be wrong for a church building to have a steeple. If money was specifically used for that, that a missionary had asked for, and that could be used to save souls, then that money was poorly spent. On the other hand, if that money was directed to it and had been designated for it, and it was not, in fact, taken away from any additional work, it could ultimately be that that particular steeple could attract individuals in such a way that maybe individuals would be more apt to appreciate that which takes place there. I would suggest, though, that whether it be a steeple or anything else, money spent on the building or money spent on decorative things like that sh should be spent very cautiously. One doesn't need an ornate structure to worship God. And the salvation of souls doesn't require it either. And so at least in that regard, I don't think we could say it's wrong, but we couldn't always say it's right either. This would be one of those situations carefully left to the discretion of the monetary matters of that congregation and the kind of works in which they're involved. But I would say, certainly you and I would wish to always be exceedingly careful with the way that we spend the money of the Lord. Evangelism, edification, and benevolence. If a particular aspect of the money can't be tied rather carefully and rather directly to one of those activities, then one would have to call it into question. Certainly, if one couldn't tie that steeple into an opportunity for evangelism or perhaps a consideration of edification, maybe one would have to more carefully than not call it into question. Again, a given congregation will have to answer for the way that they've devoted the Lord's money when it comes to something like that one. We come to question six in the last one of the night. This question is a little bit lengthier, but again, a very good question. I know as Christians we are to reach out to the lost. I have several family members who have never obeyed the gospel, and some who have, but in recent years they have tragically fallen away. I want nothing more for them than for them to make it to heaven, but tragically they are like Demas, who has loved this present world too much. Although every time I try to talk and invite these family members to the services, they have no interest in coming. It appears that their hearts have become so hardened that it doesn't bother them. They sometimes get frustrated with me as well. This saddens me to the core as I know it would it, it, this saddens me to the core as I know it would any other Christian in this situation. I continue to pray for these family members in hopes that they will make a change. My question is, should I do as Jesus commanded in Mark 6, verse 11, or should I wait some time and try again to reach them? 
You may want to be turning to Mark 6, verse 11. That was the verse that the individual referenced. Mark chapter 6, verse number 11. As you're making your way to that particular passage, let me make a few additional comments about some of the features of this question. I've tried to summarize them at the top of this particular slide. The person indicated that there must be a concern for the lost in each of us as Christians, and that's so true. Jesus said to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. And so the Great Commission is vital, and it's necessary. But that leads me to note this, there's an urgency to it. Didn't Paul say, Woe isn't to me if I preach not the gospel? 1 Corinthians 9, 16. In Romans 1, he would say, I'm ready to preach it. I'm debtor to preach it. I'm not ashamed to preach it. Verses 14 to 16 of that chapter. And so this individual has stated maybe a thought that has rested upon many of our hearts. This person has several family members who aren't faithful. Maybe they've never obeyed the gospel, but maybe some who have have chosen to go back into the world. This person has said that he or she prays for them and even invites them and speaks to them with the hope that they might have a heart to respond positively. But the person says that they often become frustrated. They don't want to hear the message. They don't want to hear the invitation. They're not interested. Well, you'll notice about the middle of the slide. That brings us to the heart of this question. If I may read it again, the person says, Should I do as Jesus said in Mark 6, 11? That verse says, And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The person's asking, should I shake the dust off my feet, don't bring it up to them anymore, don't mention it to them anymore, or, as the person said, should I wait some time and try again to reach them? I believe the context of Mark 6, 11 will be very helpful to us. You may recount with me the fact that that text in Mark 6 is a text in which the Lord was giving statements about what amounts to the limited commission. These disciples that He was sending out, you go and you preach the gospel. As you do it, there are going to be some in some cities who will not have an interest. You shake the dust off your feet, go to the next city and keep preaching. In that regard, the context is a little different. He wasn't just talking about the ordinary Christian like you and me. This was a group of people living at a time when the gospel was first getting off the ground. They needed to appreciate it and get the word out as broadly as possible. And so they had a mission. It's much like the Lord when He said, I must go to the next city. And He said that all the while there were people there desiring Him to stay and preach, and He didn't. Isn't that interesting? There were people wanting the Lord to stay and work with them, and He said, i got to go. Why? I've got to get this gospel message out to these other places as dear and far as I can. 
In that regard, I think here the answer should be worded like this. Keep praying for those family members. Don't give up inviting them. Now, it may become to work against you if you bring it up every time you see them. Every gathering, every time you come into contact with them, the first thing is basically the insistence that, that, that they come. That probably will harden them much more quickly. I'd suggest with patience and prayer, wait. Maybe not every time you see them, but always in kindness. And so that they appreciate you're not badgering them, but yet in love, you're encouraging them. Use a tone of voice that's more open to invite. Not an insistence on that way, although certainly you know the Lord insists, but do so with an attitude of provoking to love and good works. I've tried to state that near the bottom. You don't want them to avoid you. Because if that happens, you'll not be able then to have any likely success. If they turn and run every time they even see you from a distance, you're not really going to be able to word an invitation. You don't want it to get that far. But rather, when you do discuss with them, you want a kind conversation, an open conversation, a friendly conversation but nonetheless one where you find the opportunity to say, sure would love to have you visit with us. The services are uplifting to me, and I think they would be to you. I believe you'd be benefited. Don't you want to know some of the things that are taught from the Word of God? If we can find those kind of ways to approach things, we might have a better success at some point of having them come to visit with us or maybe even having a Bible study with them. Those are the six questions for the night tonight. I hope that we've been encouraged by them. And as we come to our conclusion page, there's always a great value in questions and answers as it comes to the Word of God. It's been our hope to allow the Word of God to provide us with the thoughts that we've shared. As I said before, if I didn't do justice to the question I asked, it isn't the Word of God's fault, it's mine. And I would just ask, Maybe write it out again, put it in the box, and put a different slant on it if I misinterpreted your question. And we'll try to take another crack at it at one of our next questions and answers. In this audience, there could be someone who is not right in the sight of God, and, and you know that. Maybe as a faithful Christian, at one time you have left that scene. You have begun to do things, and maybe even there's in such a private way that very few people know about it. But don't ever forget God knows it. Even if only you know it on earth, He knows it too. For the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15.3. Tonight, if you would wish to come back to your first love being in that kind of situation... Or maybe you would just like prayers of strength and encouragement. We'd be honored to pray for you. May I say that in that condition, you just need to make confession and repentance of those things and invite us to pray to God on your behalf. If we could be of any assistance or help in any way tonight, it'd be our privilege and it'd be our desire to do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.